0: the chumba life is for everybody so go to chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino style games join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes chumbacasino.com no purchase necessary void where prohibited by law 18 plus terms and conditions apply see website for details welcome to the new books network
2: hello everybody and welcome back to the academic life a podcast series here on new books network i'm dr christina gessler your host. Today, we'll be talking to Dr. Miriam Martin. Welcome to the show. Oh, thank you so much. I wonder if we could start by having you tell us about yourself.
1: Well, I would love to. (laughs) Um, I think I've had a really interesting, windy path compared to a lot of people in academia, and it's always fun to share with others and see where our paths overlap. I am an assistant professor of teaching at the University of California, Davis. Uh, What that means is that my primary responsibilities and focus are on teaching, but I also spend about 20% of my time doing research to examine that teaching, the practices that I use, are they effective? How can I make my teaching even more impactful, more interesting to the students, help them feel like they belong in the classroom even more, and really try to get them to to really engage with the material and be excited about microbes. Uh, So I'm sort of well known for being enthusiastic about microorganisms. I've been interested in them for a a very long time, ever since I was a, a college student. And I'm also the faculty advisor for the Microbiology Club here at UC Davis. And we have a lot of fun. We put on a big picnic day exhibit where Members of the community come in and they get to look under a microscope, they get to see some bacteria from inside their mouths, they get to pour plates, they get to look at Winogradsky columns, which are these fabulously beautiful and multicolored microcosms of microbes that are doing different activities inside this transparent glass column. Uh, so we let the public come in, we we show them all these different illustrations of how cool microbes are Uh, and so outreach is a big part of of what I like to do is to share my enthusiasm for microbes with everyone Um, but I also like to share my enthusiasm for a really balanced life so I'm not just a professor I'm also the mother of two daughters one of whom is in college right now. Uh, Ironically, she's at the college where I earned my PhD, by pure coincidence. Uh, She's at the Jacobs School of Music doing cello performance. And I love that she found her own passion. She didn't feel compelled to go into science, even though she is incredibly bright and could easily have made an, an excellent career out of it. I also have a younger daughter who is also her own personality, and it's just wonderful to... Watch them develop into their own people. Uh,
2: So, Christina, I'll pass it back to you. Well, that's wonderful. I was thinking when you were talking about your daughter in music that there's a strong mathematical component to music.
1: There really is. You know, she was really torn before she left for college because she could have chosen many paths. But the two that really stood out were going into science. And I should add, her father also has uh, master's degrees in physics and mathematics. And then, of course, I have my microbiology background. So she, she knows a lot of science. It's very familiar. Her mind is so quick with the, the science and the math. But she also is a really good cellist and had these tremendous experiences where she, for example, went to Europe with her high school Baroque ensemble and played a period instrument, a period cello, as they did back in the 1600s. And and went all over Vienna and uh, Austria and various Italy, um, various places performing in these amazing cathedrals. So she chose the music, but we had a lot of conversations about the crossover there. So for example, um, people with certain mental health disorders, uh, Alzheimer's, for example, they can really wake up when they hear music from some past period of time in their life. So this idea that it might cross back over took away, I think, some of the pressure to choose the perfect career for college uh, knowing that it could circle back
2: and that everyone in the family will still have a lot to talk about with each other
1: (laughs) yes I will say that since she's left for college I really miss hearing the cello in the house
2: (laughs) It is a beautiful instrument it's
1: so lovely Uh, I don't know if we want to go into this of this this story but um she uh blames uh, and or credits me with uh helping her pick the cello because I was reminding her uh, to pick the one that sounded the best (laughs) as opposed to the one that was easy to carry because she was initially going to choose the violin.
2: That's a great story. Um, So let's circle back to your education path. We're talking about um, your daughter choosing hers. What put you on your educational path? How soon did you know you were thrilled about microbes and who introduced you to them? Yes, I have
1: been interested in biology literally my entire life. Um, My mother was a lay midwife in Utah, and she had books lying around that showed the various steps in the birthing process. So my entire life, I've known I wanted children, and I've known that the human body is amazing. And how does this work? I was one of those kids that was always, why, why, why? Um, I never stopped. (laughs) And my mom had been a biologist in college as well. So she was actually able to answer some of my questions and encourage the rest of them. So then going into college, I guess I imagined initially I would study dolphins or I loved the idea of working in the canopy in the Amazon forest. Um, But I happened to work my way into a lab uh, Dr. Richard Kassenholz was a microbial ecologist at the University of Oregon, and he needed another person to help in the lab. So I signed on to the lab, and immediately we left for Yellowstone National Park, and it is an amazing place. If you've never been, please go. And when you when you look at these hot springs, you see color all around them, uh, You what you're looking at are the carotenoids and the the pigments that these organisms have that allow them to survive a high UV irradiance, so ultraviolet light, which can be damaging, and also the altitude. So they're surviving many difficult conditions for a living organism. And we wanted to understand a little better about how the photosynthetic organisms that live in these hot springs, so they're thermophiles, which means heat-loving organisms, how are they managing to grow so well under these um, severe environmental conditions? And I should say that photosynthetic organisms are particularly vulnerable to ultraviolet light because they do have these light-harvesting arrays that are designed to bring in light, but they don't want too much of that good thing Uh, and not the, the ultraviolet part of the spectrum. So we went to National uh, Yellowstone National Park, along with several graduate students and the Dr. Kassenholtz, the, the principal investigator or PI. And it was a tremendous experience. It was amazing. We were driving out to a particular hot spring that we had a permit to um, collect samples from. We would um, scrape up and remove some of the organisms that were growing in the outflow from Octopus Springs. We would put them inside a cooler along with a bunch of hot water to try and keep them at that same temperature, which is what they're accustomed to and they've evolved to grow best at. And we would try to drive back as quickly as possible to this um, trailer that we had that was our our designated research area. And that drive was very stressful because there were often people that would just park their RVs in the middle of the road and we're we're thinking "Our, our samples are dying, our samples are dying. Um, once we did have to turn around and go get new samples because too much time had passed, but usually we got back to the trailer and we would add some, uh, C14 so that we could measure the photosynthetic production of the species. And we would lay them out in the sun with different levels of filters on them. And we were trying to get an idea of, um, how much irradiance could they handle? What impact did the different levels of irradiance have on their productivity? So That was just a fantastic experience. We would do this research by day. By night, we were camping in West Yellowstone. Lots of stories. Dr. Kassenholz was one of those people that had just so many fantastic stories. He could identify the temperature of any hot spring by by simply looking at it and knowing what he knew about the species and the coloration that they had, what could grow at different temperatures. Just a fantastic individual, and unfortunately he passed away, but he has left behind this enormous community of people who just love microbes and really appreciate the the microbial ecology field. So I had that experience, and that's all it took, just that one field trip. (laughs) But I continued on with the lab, and I was part of a project to characterize the carotenoids, which are these pigments that are used for bringing in the light, but also for shielding, protecting the cell from ultraviolet light. So once um, once I, I graduated from the undergraduate college, from University of Oregon, I was just in, in love with microbes, and I was sort of fascinated by what they could do. They can grow at high temps, they can resist UV, and I discovered a faculty member at Indiana University in Bloomington, Eve Brunn, uh, who has now since gone on to Montreal. Um, but he his work was so fascinating. He was looking at Colobacter crescentus*, which is an organism, a bacterium, that has this obligatory developmental cycle. So it has these different cell types that show up at different part of the cell cycle, just like what we think of as an animal can do, right? Different stages of development. So it has initially this this swarmer cell that has a flagellum that allows it to swim and find more nutrient rich environments. Then it sh- drops the, the flagellum, which is sort of like a propeller on a boat. It sheds that, but then it grows this long stalk with a really sticky holdfast and it grips onto the surface in the environment. And then it lets the water just wash over it while it pulls out the goodies, the nutrients, the water is flowing past. Uh, the stock cell then will undergo rounds of cell division. And so at regular intervals, the chromosome of the bacterium will, will duplicate. Everything inside the cell will, will double and become bigger and more. And then at some point, there'll be a, a partition, a division, at the midpoint, and it will release a new swarmer cell to go off and come start the cycle over again. So I studied what was the the regulation of the cell division proteins that localize to the middle of the cell and do that pinching off so that the swarmer cell can leave.
2: That's really fascinating. Hearing all of this, I can see why um, these two professors really. Um, brought you in because their work is so fascinating, especially, I have to say, I'm still back at that hot springs with the professor who could look at it and, and, and know the temperature. That's the stuff of uh, mythological stories. And yet it was real. Uh, you met someone with that skill who in- inspired you so tremendously. And, and then you went on to meet someone else whose work was so inspiring for you. Yes. I mean, I, I've been so fortunate
1: in who I've interacted with in science, <laughs> I mean, there, there's just so many wonderful people out there. Um, but the people I've happened to interact with and, and have conversations with and be taken on field trips with um, has really just been such a, bl- a blessing to me. Um, Eve, the, the one I was just describing the studied so to Crescentus at Indiana University, um, he was so enthusiastic, and you knew. <laughs> But he had a really exciting result. He would he would wander through the labs, just going bench to bench, asking, "Hey, what do you what's going on today? What do you have?" And he would say, "Oh, that's so damn cool <laughs> for a, a really exciting result." And and even something that was really so small, you know, you were just looking at a band on a gel, but but he would you know help you see the implications of that and be super excited for you. So he he really built a culture of excitement. And just such an enormous curiosity about how, how the world worked and, and collaborations. He was very good at collaborating with other other scientists.
2: So the two uh, mentors that you mentioned are are male. Um, when you were in school, did you have female professors who who were pivotal as well? And did you have female students? Was it mostly Male students, how did that how did that work, and how did that affect you as a student in STEM?
1: Well, that's a really good question.
2: So maybe first, I should also share that I have
1: I'm one of six children and three brothers. I'm the oldest, and then there are three boys after me. (laughs) So I'm pretty comfortable um, being in a a, you know what you say a man's world or in the environment that's really sort of dominated by you know uh, these these uh, male characters in my life. Um, but I I was aware from the very early on point that I wanted children. So when I was working with Dr. Kassenholz as an undergraduate, I wasn't really thinking quite about children yet. His lab did happen to have a lot of male characters. And in fact, I worked with a graduate student, Scott Miller, and he was incredibly supportive. It was a very very supportive laboratory. We also had some female graduate students, uh, master's and PhD students uh, that interacted with everyone. We got together a lot as a laboratory, and they were also very supportive and would ask questions of me in the lab meetings and so on to try and help me develop as a scientist. Um, But I would say that was mostly mostly male-dominated, but a a very supportive and welcoming community. When I went to graduate school, I I knew that I was probably going to have children during this period. And as I was looking for faculty uh, whose labs I might join to complete the rest of my my PhD, I had that in the back of my mind. And Eve was, you know, obviously male. He had... um, think one other male student in the lab but it was mostly females in the lab there was uh, postdoc there were several uh, female graduate students um, two of whom had had children recently so that that sort of caught my attention in addition to Eve's research being so exciting and him as a person being someone I wanted to work with Uh, so in the department there were a number of women who I connected with over the course of my PhD. Um, Miriam Zolan is one, and she was on my thesis committee. So I, I sought out women to get advice from. But inside of Eve's lab, I feel very, very welcome and very supportive. And uh, the fact I'm pretty confident that I made the right pick as far as uh, labs to join, because when I told him I was pregnant with my first child, this was about a year after passing my qualifying exam. Um, I was a little bit nervous because it was not something that many graduate students do. It's, it's often uh, discouraged, right? This is supposed to be a productive time when you're really building your know-how and you're, you're working crazy hours at times. Uh, it's not something that the faculty might encourage you to have when I first got there. And nobody in my class had had children, yet nobody had become pregnant. Um, so I was a little nervous, but when I told him I was uh, pregnant, he was just so excited for me and so supportive. And we had a conversation uh, about what would happen once the baby was born. Uh, there, there were no formal policies in the the department of the university at the time that addressed what to do, you know, with this the graduate student that has a baby and needs to step out to have the baby um there there were no no financial securities uh, for graduate students but he he made I said I would like to take off 3 months entirely I really just want to you know recover <laughs> from the birthing process and, and yeah. bond with my baby <laughs> yeah and he was immediately just so supportive and he says oh you know you know you're a research assistant on my grant I'm, I'm going to pay you for the Three months, no question about it. And, and then I also wanted a, a, another three-month transition period at half half pace. And he was supportive of that as well. So I, I truly am so thankful to him for that.
2: That is amazing, um, because not all uh, women in academia have similar stories to that one. Um, no, you're,
1: you're absolutely right. And in fact, once I became visibly pregnant... I had quite a few colleagues, you know, female graduate students come up and take me to the side and say, don't tell my advisor. Mm-hmm. But I'm thinking of having a kid. Can you tell me, how did you tell Eve? You know, how did you break the news to your advisor? You know, they were so afraid of this response that they might get back. Others were asking about the health insurance. Is it enough? You know, should I should I do this now? It was clearly an interest from others to have their children, and, and maybe not everybody felt as supported as I
0: slash nbn50 to get 50% off.
2: Were you able to provide mentoring to them? It's it's an interesting space for you to be in. You're a student yourself. You've just been assured of security. You're trusting that that's going to be true based on the what you know so far of that professor. Um, but you haven't been pregnant before. You haven't really tested out the health insurance. <laughs> um, and you've got students who you know, you're getting to know now on a whole nother level because you're all bonding through potential motherhood or impending motherhood. How do you have time and space for that mentoring role or were you really feeling that you weren't up to offering advice? Well, um, I, I definitely shared my
1: experience. Um, so for example, with the, the health insurance, by the time I was visibly showing, I was five or six months in, so I knew the ultrasound had been covered and the visits were covered. Um, and I could predict what the cost would be after the, the delivery, which actually we had quite good insurance. So that was the good news. Um, and as far as uh, how to tell their bosses, I, I just shared what I had told them. I said, you know, here's what I experienced. Here's how I broke it to him. You know, here's how I framed it. Uh, but we were all aware that there were different takes on the you know, whether or not graduate students should be having children. Maybe just as an aside, as a counterbalance. (laughs) There was someone else, another faculty member in the department um, that ran a lab that two of my best friends from graduate school happened to be in. And they told me later, I don't know, maybe in my ninth or eighth month, I'm just, you know, waddling. (laughs) I was very big. I was just waddling down the hallway ahead of, this professor with his two graduate students and he made some comment to them that says, Oh, graduate students have no business having babies. <laughs> not knowing he was saying that to my best friends. So the support I found was not, you know, was not widespread and, and not to be found in everyone, but there, there were other faculty that were supportive of graduate students that had children. And in fact, after I had my baby, there was not too long after, there was kind of a, a, a boom in the number of babies born to students in the department.
2: And I actually found you on Twitter. We haven't actually met for listeners who are wondering how we connected for this topic today of talking about grad school and, and the path to academia and um, what happens along the way. I found you on Twitter because a current grad student posted a statement on Twitter didn't, didn't preface why they were posting it that day or what led to it, but just something along the lines of I'm considering leaving grad school. Is that normal? And I'm going to say within an hour, there were like 50 responses. Um, it was during the election stuff that's going on in the U S and so either were other Twitter feeds that were blowing up as well. And I lost track of how that, that feed, um, went, but you were one of the people who posted. And some people posted that they had left grad school when when things different things happened for them. But you posted that you had faced a challenge, but you had stayed. And so that intrigued me um, about what things had come up in your grad school path and what made you question, do I stay or go? And what helped you stay? And so far, I'm hearing that you had some really amazing mentors. Um, things that were not necessarily duplicated for your best friends or for other people uh, in other departments at the same time, and you were able to work on that work-life balance that you told us is so important to you and and your personal goals of of starting a family. Was it during this time period that that um, you started wondering if grad school was the right path.
1: Yes, that's that's right. So, um, even when you have wonderful supportive mentor, and you have a secure financial situation, like I was fortunate to have, um, there are these difficulties that just come out of the work itself. So there was, for example, this one procedure that I had to do fairly often to to synchronize the population of cells so that I could track the development of colobacter over time, take samples at different time points, and then look and see, for example, where the cell division proteins were localized at these different points in the the cycle, a two-hour cycle. So the synchronization process would take many hours. Then you would be taking your samples, and then you would start to process So it was a very long day. So it was about a, you know, maybe a 15 hour day from start to finish. So I had that going on at the same time I was trying to, you know, first be pregnant, (laughs) you know, and just very tired. And then later on, um, once I had returned from my postpartum break, um, recovery period, I had to return to this even though, you know, my daughter was still uh, nursing and waking up several times through the night. She gets up at 5.30, 6 o'clock in the morning, no matter how late I, I stumbled in from the lab. It was just exhausting. Um, and my daughter did not take well to daycare. So in a way, it was a sort of a uh, compliment. She was so attached to me. She just wanted me to be there. And I, I got to tell you, there's, there's nothing harder than leaving behind a four-month-old baby at a daycare who's crying so hard <laughs> and the only thing she wants is you. So it's very hard to leave that at the daycare and then go into the lab and be very productive and not have your mind kind of split over here where your daughter is. Um, so during this period, I just I just was exhausted, you know, physically, emotionally exhausted, and, and I was so sleep deprived. I was afraid I would had left the lab at, you know, 1 o'clock in the morning with the Bunsen burner on twice, I I drove back to the lab in the middle of the night to make sure I hadn't left the Bunsen burner on. I just couldn't remember shutting it off. You know, after after shutting it off a thousand times, right over over that period, I couldn't remember. Did I do it? Um. So at this point, I I went into Eve and I just said, Hey, here's how I'm feeling, and I'm just you know so overwhelmed. And he he really validated what I was feeling. He's like, You can see that you're exhausted, and and so on. But I think you have enormous potential. And I think, you know, intellectually you absolutely have what it takes. You know, maybe just try it for a little bit longer. And and then also we had some technical difficulties that I was trying to work through. And and he always would try to he just his office was always open. You could go in and he would try to help you troubleshoot the technical side, maybe think about it approaching from a slightly different direction, move you forward again. And and so with his encouragement and just, uh, I did slow down my re- return to the lab. I, I allowed uh, my daughter a longer period of transition to the daycare. So I went in for you know, I went to the lab just for, you know, very short periods at first. And then they got longer and longer until I finally worked up to a productive period in the lab. Um, so really with the support of everybody in the lab, <laughs> everyone was chipping in the person who, her research associate, she was so supportive and, um, would order everything I needed right away and aliquot it for me, you know, everyone just kind of chipped in, uh, to, to help everyone else. And, and I was
2: definitely the benefit of that. That's an amazing story. I'm, it's a wonderful model for listeners wherever they are in their path in academia to hear about how collaboration, um, can be all the difference in who stays and and who goes.
1: It was it was just lovely, you know. Uh, my brain wasn't working that well at first, mostly I think because of the sleep deprivation. <laughs> um, and and everyone just was just so supportive, and it was it had always been supportive. You know, we had weekly lab meetings where one person would present, and other individuals in the lab would would chime in and offer advice or, or kind of challenged that that approach might be the best. You know, in a friendly way. So we had this long long history of, of supporting each other and, and collaborating. But I would say I, I pulled pretty hard <laughs> on the uh, the lab support network there for
2: probably a good six months. What would you say for um, professors who are listening and who are thinking to themselves, you know, we need more women in STEM. I have women in STEM right now. I want to retain them. Um, what would you say are some of the key takeaways for what made a huge difference or what you can see when you offer it to your own students that makes a big difference in understanding women's work-life balance and retaining them?
1: Well, that's such an interesting question. I think being really honest about how, how much of a drain it will be to have a baby, just if everyone could just be very honest and and recognize that this this period, it's not just you know, the birth, and then two weeks later you go back. I know people who do that, but I think I think they got robbed a little bit of that the early bonding experience. Um, some of them had not even physically recovered before they they had to go back. So just acknowledging where the energy, where your energies are going to go, where your attention is going to go, helping students prepare for that. When I say students, students, postdocs, other junior faculty, you know, helping them realize uh, how long a period it's going to be, strategize mechanisms to set yourself up in advance of that. So for example, I know some faculty, they will really focus on getting the data collection and then focus more on paper writing and, and maybe grant writing during their postpartum period when they, they can still be at home and kind of chipping away at these things without having to be physically present in the from the baby as, as long as possible. And I think just, just being supportive, validating, providing those financial supports, you know, I mean, having babies is not optional for our species. <laughs> if our species is going to go forward, somebody has got to have the babies and the biology just dictates that it's us. And that's both um, a weight, right? It definitely, definitely slowed my career down, but it's also a, a privilege and a pleasure. I really enjoyed the the process of raising my babies and being pregnant. It's it's an incredible experience. It's mind boggling from a developmental standpoint, and to actually go through that process, knowing what I know about about the biology and the steps in development, was was something I would not trade for anything. Um, but again, I was given this support, and so I would just say, be provide financial support, planning ahead being understanding, sharing your own challenges that you had earlier in your career will all be very helpful. And there are a lot of resources at the University of California, Davis now for parents. Uh, So for example, during COVID, we now have uh, childcare support, we have um, working groups and information groups where parents can get together and talk about the realities of trying to get work done during COVID with small children at home. Uh, they now have lactation stations where nursing mothers can get a code that gives them access to a private room to nurse. That is not something I had as a graduate student. Um, I was told to go use the bathroom. <laughs> and I don't know if you've ever fixed a sandwich in the bathroom. But it's not a good place to be preparing food. <laughs> and breast milk is food for babies. Um, and it was a very strange bathroom also. So there was the power plug on one side of the entryway and there was the bench with a screen you could pull around so that you could breast pump in private, supposedly. But there's this, this cord and there's this sound and people were coming in and out, walking right past this curtain. It's not really good for letting down and, and producing milk. Uh, so again, luckily, uh, this these people that were in this office actually had a a break room that they let me use, but it's not ideal. Uh, But I think increasingly as time goes on, it's gotten better and better. So now we have lactation stations at UC Davis. And I think a lot of universities are trying to accommodate and and make it possible to be a parent and also a
2: scientist. Those sound like really important things. And I would I would hate for students to have to be the ones to ask, you know, you were trying to make it work without the privacy, trying to will your body to relax and release the milk and pump, even though our bodies also have, um, wiring going on telling us when it's safe to do something and when it's not. And that situation sounds really disruptive for you trying to, um, pump so that you could, um, get the breast milk that your, that your baby needed. Um, So I would hope that listeners who are in administration would hear these ideas and say, oh yeah, we can do that too. We don't have to wait for students to ask because it, in some ways it puts women in a really vulnerable position to have to go in and explain why using the bathroom, the way it's set up is not a risk respectable way for the woman to do what she needs to do. It's such an essential thing. And like you said, it's, you wouldn't ask her to go make sandwiches in there.
1: <laughs> you know, I, I think, honestly, the solution we need is for more women to have babies in academia. Because I, I feel like there's a sort of, we need a community that are all going through the same thing. So, so like you said, you no know, one person has to ask all the questions. So I, I actually did. I went to the chair of the department who was a very nice man, but he's never been in the women's bathroom. (laughs) And he was really confused. He's like, no, I I thought there were lactation stations in the bathroom. (laughs) And then I described it to him. And then he's, well, you know, he's the one who connected me with the office staff. You know, he presented the problem and, and found a solution for me, but he just had no idea. So this, you know, you can't know about what you haven't experienced Unless there is a large community that's talking about it and, and letting everybody know what the problems and the solutions are.
2: And it seems like, in a way, they can chase each other's tail. If it's not set up in a way that women feel um, is going to support their pregnancy, they will have their pregnancy off screen. They will postpone it. They will take a leave. They will drop out because the environment and is not saying, yes, we're, we're, we're all set for you and we support you. And we, we believe that this is important. Um, But if women make those choices, then the school continues to say, well, women just don't have babies at work. They just, we have a whole staff and they're all childless. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's, that's right. Yeah.
1: I think, you know, even in my own department at UC Davis, it used to be largely male Um, This is, you know, a few decades ago, largely male, very few women. And the women there were did not have children, although nearly all the men did have wives who had children, right, who had gone through the birthing process. Now we have several women in the department, and some of those have gone on to have children. So we're just, I feel like we're, we're gaining steam. It's becoming more common. It's becoming normalized for at least faculty to have the children. And when we have faculty having babies, that's they're going to understand what the graduate students and the postdocs are going to have to contend with and plan for. So I feel like we've, we've gained some good momentum. COVID's not really helped that process. It's set us back in some ways um, because we're seeing that in households, women are still taking the brunt of the childcare and the, the virtual homeschooling. And women are now submitting fewer papers, whereas uh, males are on average submitting more papers during the same time period. So we still have a lot of work, but I do feel there's increased awareness on our campus at least. And from what I've heard, uh, Indiana University has also made huge, huge strides as far as supporting women in science at all levels of their career.
2: So can you talk to us about where you are in your career now and how these uh, experiences have affected how you teach and mentor at work?
1: Yes, so um, I am very grateful that I continued pushing forward on my PhD. So I I thought about quitting uh, (laughs) right after the baby was born and even a year or so later, I was just running into this technical problem that that almost convinced me I should just take a terminal master's and and leave. Um, I, I went to graduate school because I just I love learning, but I didn't have a firm career in mind. I didn't think I wanted to be in charge of a large group of people doing bench research. It seemed like a heavy responsibility to me. <clears throat> so I, I maybe didn't need my PhD. But I'm, I'm so glad I continued it because it turns out I didn't. I did need my PhD to do what I absolutely love, which is teaching, and also working with education researchers to to look at the impact of the teaching practices that that we use. So I I don't have a, a large lab of people, but I work with undergraduates who contribute to the education research side, and I work with a lot of teaching assistants who are graduate students that are assisting teach the class and also undergraduate educators. Um, one of my favorite, favorite teaching practices is inviting undergraduates to be part of the, the teaching process. They facilitate conversation. They help the students with these activities that we provide in the lecture and laboratory setting to cement their knowledge. And I do a, a lot of uh, mentoring and training for both of these populations, the graduate and the undergraduate teaching systems. Really, as far as mentoring, I I just try to make myself really approachable. So I share my story. I share my story about having children with my students, even, um, in the lecture classroom. I want to normalize having a family and having this, this work. And they can actually inform each other. So uh, after you've been teaching for a long time, sometimes you forget what it's like to be a true novice in a classroom. And by having conversations with my children, um, one of who is now a, a sophomore in college, one of whom is a sophomore in high school, they remind me <laughs> what it's like to be a, a novice and how to improve my teaching. So I share stories like this with, with my students and, and my teaching teams. Um, we also I try to accommodate their schedules as much as possible. This is true for my students as well. Um, we talk about that some of us have home lives that create conflicts uh, in the schedule with you know when our office hours are and so on, and we work around them. And so I try to to model taking into account a robust home life and provide flexibility for people who are, at home with babies, taking care of their parents or relatives who have to work to support a family even while they're in college or graduate school. So I think really just having more conversations, normalizing uh, a balance between uh, home and family life and work life is, is very important.
2: Sounds like in some ways your mom was an important mentor in creating that philosophy in you. That she was a midwife. That she had all those books around the house about anatomy and midwifery and the body. Um, that she was doing all that while she was raising a large, robust family, um, and that that had a strong impression on you and created a worldview that you have imbued into your work life. I've always had enormous respect for my mom.
1: I don't really know how she did it. (laughs) How do you have six children? (laughs) And then also uh, train as a midwife, which involves hundreds and hundreds of hours spent at deliveries and debriefing and talking about her practice with other midwives how do, you, how do you do that both? And I, I know it was very challenging. And actually, ultimately, she ended up giving up the midwifery, not so much because she didn't want to do it anymore, because she, she feels a deep need to, to serve and help other people, but because babies seem to always be born in the middle of the night. <laughs> and that's just difficult when you've got babies of your own at home. Um, she was, This is such a wonderful experience. Um, a couple of times there were some births where she took me along with her. And so she really did the ultimate crossover of family life and work life. So I went to a couple of births and uh, my job was to take pictures, make tea. Um, but of course it was really mostly for me. And it, it left such a deep impression that for many years I thought I wanted to be a midwife. Um, but then I you know, I got to college and I just fell in love with, with basic research and, and answering a broader set of curiosities. Um, so I think you're right. I've I've always admired that about about
2: my mom. What do you hope this conversation sparks for listeners?
1: Well, a couple of things. Uh, just to go back to the Twitter feed that you were talking about, it's so important that before people go to graduate school, they ask themselves, "What do I want out of it?" and and then once they go there, to normalize, continuing to ask that question. Is this the direction I want to go in? Do I need this degree? What will allow me to do? Am I enjoying the process? I, I am in, totally in love with the process of learning. I cannot get enough of it. <laughs> the job I have right now is amazing because I, I always get to learn so that I can then teach my students. Um, so uh, understanding yourself and asking do I really need to continue on this path? And recognize that there are many paths that are just as amazing, could be just as rewarding for you. And don't get caught up in any sort of bias that, that academia is the end-all, be-all, because it's one path. And it's a wonderful path for the people that, that have the, the need for it and who are really rewarded by it. But it's, it's also very fine to say, what else might I do that I might love, that I might feel equally passionate about and that might fit into my life in, in a better way. It's not giving up. It's just looking at an alternative that might be a better fit for you. So that's one objective. I'd like to normalize people questioning and, and being aware of why they're pursuing graduate education. And when people... Uh, decide to take a different path that we all support them and help them do that. So I know at UC Davis, there are increasing programs to talk about what what does this prepare you for? What are the options in front of you with this degree behind you to to really make it visible that there are other options and here's how you could achieve them. Um, I, for one, really try to make teaching a viable option, right? Not just business research research where you do a little bit of teaching because you have to, because you're a faculty member, but that you actually love the teaching and and you can pursue that. The other objective is to normalize having family and, and, and to add the value of that to the conversation in academia that you don't, you know, recruit a female faculty member, um, with thinking about, oh gosh, well, we're probably going to lose a year for time to babies. You know, don't think of it that way. Think of it as we're recruiting someone who is participating in the human experience, and that is going to enrich their perspectives in their research, in their teaching, and it's going to really make a stronger community that's more more vibrant and more diverse if we can really embrace this side of the the human experience.
2: And I like that um, earlier you talked about how family, particularly for female students, does not need to be defined as parenthood, that they are caregivers to siblings, to parents, that they are engaged in their own family life, and that women who are single are women who do not have children still have families. And still have family lives that are important to them, that they shouldn't be asked to choose between a work obligation and a really important family life. That's that's so true.
1: When I have students that approach me explaining a situation, maybe there's a homework that's late because they had to take their sister to the the doctor or something. I I am so impressed with them. I, I look at them differently and in a in a in a way, a better way, because I think while wow, you have this depth to you, you're a caring person. You are who I want in my community and you deserve our support just by virtue of, of who they are and their strong character. So as far as what faculty, faculty can do to support that and, and instructors really, is build flexibility into your program. Accommodate these students. It, it often doesn't take a big adjustment and you can build flexibility into your syllabus. That applies to everybody. Because in my experience, almost everybody in the class needs a break for some reason or another. So there's it's possible to support these really amazing students. You know, when I was in, in graduate school, I had such a simple life. I had no children. I lived on campus for the first year. I really could focus on my academics. And I... I I did have to pay my own way through, so I also worked, Um, and a lot of our students, most of our students are working, but I didn't have any family responsibilities. Um, So just being aware that there are these students out there that have these additional aspects of their lives at at this time, I think will benefit all of us.
2: And as you said, to bring it more to the forefront, that we want them to have full lives. We want them to have work-life balance. We don't want academia to be a bunch of people who said, well, I really, really like my brain and all my thinky thoughts, so I'm going to give up on anything outside my laboratory or my library. Um, We want students and faculty to have very full, rich lives and to be part of academia if it's right for them to, to be academics. I agree.
1: I agree. You know, connecting your academic life with, sometimes we talk about, you know, the real world, (laughs) you know, so what are the applications, what you're learning and trying to make connections to, to all aspects of, of life is going to help them not only learn the content but understand what their mission will be once they leave our doors. You know, once they go out into the world, we want them to be full human beings, citizens that are engaged in everything from policy making that supports families in science to um, practitioners that develop resources, for example, like a COVID vaccine and so on, but keeping in mind the context of the community.
2: I wish we had more time to talk. It's been a really fascinating conversation and I've really enjoyed having you here. Thank you so much for coming on the show today, Dr. Miriam Martin, and talking to us about graduate experience. I'm Dr. Christina Gessler. You've been listening to The Academic Life on New Books Network. Please join us again.